you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 35. Today is the penultimate sermon in our Exodus series, meaning next week will be our final one in Exodus. And in a lot of ways, what we have here in chapter 35 is uh, the Israelites are kind of in Advent mode. And so if you're familiar with the like liturgical church calendar, Advent <clears throat> is that period of time that we celebrate like the four Sundays leading up till Christmas as well as Christmas Eve when we celebrate both the first coming of Jesus when He was made incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, and also the second coming of Jesus. And so that's why in Advent we don't just talk about just Christmas, it's both His first Advent, His first coming, and His second coming that we celebrate. And so when I say that the Israelites are kind of in Advent mode, it, it, they're not like in literal Advent mode and like the appearing of Jesus is about to happen, but in more of a like uh, similarity. Because what's going on here is they are preparing the temple for the arrival of the presence of God to inhabit the tabernacle. I said temple, it's tabernacle, it's a tent right now inhabit the tabernacle, that he might dwell among them. So they are preparing for that. And what we have in chapters 35 through 38 is almost verbatim uh, repeat of what we had in chapters 25 through 27 with the commandment to build the tabernacle and all these various elements that go inside of it. And so if you were here on that Sunday, we talked about how the tabernacle is kind of like a pop-up book and all the different pieces of furniture are aspects of the gospel that kind of pop up in 3D at us. That's what the tabernacle and all this stuff shows us. And so with this verbatim, we've got repeated here, uh, but there's one major key difference in the, in the two, you know, the repeat. In the first one, they were hearing the command to build all this. And now in the second one, they actually do it. And so, in other words, what we've got here is we've got the, the command to not just be a hearer of the Word, like Angela just read about out of James 1, but to be a doer of the Word. And that's kind of the big picture framework of, of the entire, like what's happening here in 35, really all the way to the end of 39 when everything's completed. They've not only heard the commandment to do it, but now they have actually built it. They've done it. And so that's the big picture kind of overarching thing. But then we're given two specific applications in this section of what part of doing the Word looks like. I mean, there's a gazillion different applications, and the Bible gives us all these. But we do get two specific ones here, and these two are that we would give generously and that we would serve willingly. And so really, that, that's kind of the outline already, and it's important that I give that to you right now because we're about to read a chunk of Scripture and if you don't have those three things kind of rolling through your mind, it's going to be easy to kind of get lost in all the details of various things. So I want to go ahead and give those to you so that you can see them as we make our way through the reading. And so just real quick again, number one, be doers of the word. All right, this is your outline. Be doers of the word. Be generous givers. That's number two. And be willing servants. That's number three. All right, that's the app. This is how this applies. Be doers of the word, big picture, but then specifically here, we're going to hear about generosity and about service. And so, if you'll join me in reading chapter 35, we'll pick it up in verse 4. Again, we're going to read a good bit. I don't want you to get lost in the sauce. I want you to have those three things in your mind so that you can see them and look for them as we make our way through. 
Exodus 35, starting in verse 4. It'll be on the screens as well if you don't have a Bible around you. And if you literally don't own a Bible and you see a black one around you, take it home, it's yours. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Right? He's already commanded it back in chapter 25. Now they're going to actually do it. And so first he says, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastplate, for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its coverings, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen, that's the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering. So now we're outside the tabernacle, the things that are outside, with its grating of bronze, its poles, with its, all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court. So talking about like kind of the perimeter fence type deal. Its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords. The finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place. The holy garments of, for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. So then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram's skins, goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver, of bronze, brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod, for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and the anointing oil for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship, to, devi to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. 
And he's inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahasamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. And watch this. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. And so Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with its ten curtains. And then it goes on to just detail all that they made all the way through the end of chapter 39. But again, the big point here, the overarching point, number one in your notes, is that they not only heard the word back in chapter 25, but here they are actually doing it. And so again, number one in your notes, be doers of the word. Not just hearers. Be doers of the word. In other words, the Christian life is not just knowing the playbook, but actually running the plays. We talked about this before. Like It's not enough to, to know the playbook, love the playbook, memorize the playbook, be able to quote the playbook in Greek and Hebrew, form study groups around the playbook. This is what it would look like if we actually did it. No, actually do the playbook. Right? Run the plays. That's what we're called to do. We are to hear, so yeah, we do need to hear it, we do need to know it, but we hear it so that we can do it. We are to hear and to do. And so practically this week, it, it, there's been a lot going on, right? We had the Southern Baptist Convention on Tuesday and Wednesday. Yesterday was Juneteenth. Today's Father's Day. For my family, we, we, we went down to Mississippi this uh, weekend on Thursday, and so there's been a lot going on, but heading into the SBC, it was weird that there were so many people praying for, you know, peacemaking and kindness and love. Weird, like, those are good things, but weird because, like, for the Christian, that should just be part and parcel of how we live. That's part of what separates us off and says, hey, these people are distinct. They live differently than the world. But too often we act just like the world, just with a little less cussing maybe. And so everybody like, loves the idea of peacemaking and kindness. Like, you're not going to find anyone who you know, thinks that like, the problem with the world is there's too much kindness. There's too much peacemaking, there's too much humility, there's too much putting others first. I mean, just basic vintage Christianity, right? Sermon on the Mount, just basic Christian living. 
Everybody loves those ideas, but we don't necessarily like the application of, of those ideas. We don't like what it would cost us to change our lives to match those things. We don't like the application of what peacemaking would demand in our life that has to change. And so it's kind of like the novelist Leo Tolstoy once said, everybody thinks of changing humanity, but nobody thinks about changing themselves. But we're called to change ourselves. Now, you can't control other people, but you can control you. We're called to control ourselves, change ourselves. So to be a hearer only would be someone who hears like just basic vintage Christianity things, peacemaking, kindness, mercy, graciousness, being kind, being humble, not bearing false witness, and then just walks out the door and doesn't consider in any way how that would be lived out in their life, in their family, in their workplaces, those that are, that are around them at school. Rather, they're just things we regurgitate because they sound good, but we have no intentionality of living them. That's a hearer. We're not called to that. We're called to be doers. We've got to hear Right? Got to hear, yes. But we're called to do as well. And where we don't do it, if we read in Matthew 7 where Jesus talks about the wise man and the fool, the wise man is the one who hears God's word and does it, right? House is built on a rock, and the fool is the one who hears God's word and does not do it, and the house on the sand goes splat. Here's a reality. From cover to cover, the Bible calls us to hear God's Word and do God's Word. And not just the pieces we like. Not just the pieces we get fired up about, but perhaps especially the pieces that are hardest for us. And so the question then we need to ask is what are the pieces that are hardest for you? Like We all are wired in different ways. Some people don't struggle with this. And some people don't struggle with this, like, right? But then other people struggle with this. And what we do a lot of times wrongly is we pick on those things with which we don't struggle. And to make ourselves feel good because we don't struggle with that one. But we got our own issues. And so what is hardest for you? I'm just thinking through again, just letting the Sermon on the Mount just be a, 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 a sample test for us. <clears throat> is what's hardest for you loving your enemy? Is it loving your neighbor as yourself? Is it living counterculturally, not being conformed to the pattern of the world, but being transformed, being different? Is it being merciful to people who aren't merciful to you? Is it being a peacemaker? Maybe hardest for you is being kind to people who are unkind to you. Maybe it's not retaliating. That's really hard. Not fighting fire with fire. Not doing unto others what they did to you, but rather doing unto others what you wish they'd done to you. Maybe the hardest thing for you is to be just as leery of the folks who use God as a rallying cry, but don't live anything like the Sermon on the Mount as we are of the secular, scary world outside. Maybe hardest for us is following the lamb instead of an elephant or a donkey. 
but we're called to be doers, not just hearers. All of our life conformed to Christ. And then specifically in this text, like there's a gazillion applications, but in this text, the way this presents itself is through generosity and giving and through willingness and service. And so number two, we'll just roll into that. Be a generous giver, okay? That's part of doing God's word. It's not all of it, but that's one application. It's the application we see here. You just look at the crazy generosity of the people in, you know, giving here. And you see that everyone contributed. Like verse 22, so they came, both men and women. Verse 21, everyone who could make his contribution. Verse 25, all the skilled women. Verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them. Verse 27, all the leaders. And the emphasis here is the range and the willingness of, of everyone. People from every walk of life. You've got the rich, you've got the poor, you've got rulers, you've got women, men. All people bringing different kinds of gifts and service. And they give to the point, I hope you saw this in 36.6, they give to the point that Moses had to have a stop giving campaign. They stop giving so much. We're overrun here. Like This is the generosity with which they're giving. And so listen, there's a time for like big time capital campaigns. Like we've got one here. They're wanting to construct the temple. We need... Moses says, hey, let's take up a contribution. There's a place for that. We, we did that here in this church from 2011 to 2014. And we have kind of a miniature one going on right now. $50,000 between now and September to complete the rest of the parking lot. And then in another year or two, we'll probably start the next phase of our building project. And so there's a place for that. But the biblical idea of being a generous giver, particularly in the life of the church, isn't just around big campaigns. It's just in the faithfulness of week by week by week. Active worship of giving. And here's the reality that kind of helps frame all of that. You and I own nothing. Right? It's kind of like with my kids. We'll, we'll be talking about something and they may say, well, my room, and I'm like, well, just stop right there. That is not your room. That is my room. Do you pay the mortgage? Do you pay the bills? All right, That's my room. I own it. It's not you. Now, I'm glad to let you use it. I am glad. And I want you to steward it well, but, but it's mine. I own it. And that is us with God. Everything is His. We don't say my house or my money or my car. Like everything belongs to him. And he's glad for us to, to use it. And he calls us to steward it well. Everything we have is on loan from him. And he calls us to steward it well. And so all of, you know, that you think like my money. No, it's God's. Every dime every penny is his and the old testament commandment of tithing seemed to be presupposed in the new testament sort of a sort of a starting point for giving but it would be ludicrous based upon the rest of scripture to think that 10 percent, you know giving to the church settles the idea of being a good steward or not 
Because let's be honest, 10% for a lot of people doesn't hurt. Like, it doesn't hurt. Right? 10%, not, not a big deal, it doesn't really hurt. I'll be fine. It's not sacrificial. And it creates a notion, I did my 10%. That, that, that's God's money, but all the rest is mine. Doesn't capture the idea of lavish giving that the rest of Scripture speaks to, that Paul speaks to, that we see demonstrated here when you stop the giving campaign. Lavish giving is not out of our abundance, but out of our need, beyond our abundance. <clears throat> and so I think John Piper hits the nail on the head when he asks these questions. In a world of such immense need, and, li- and listen, we're not t- when we're talking about giving, you give first to the church, but that's not where it stops. You continue giving to a gazillion different things, but you start first with the church. Here's the questions. In a world of such immense need and in a country of such immense luxury and under the commission of such a powerful Lord, the issue of stewardship is not shall I tithe, but rather how much of God's trust fund dare I use to surround myself with comforts? The question is not can I afford to tithe, but can I justify the lifestyle that consumes 90% of my income? In light of eternity. And behind that question is, do I love to use God's money to spread justice and mercy and the gospel and spiritual hope in the world? Or do I prefer to embezzle His money to purchase more and more stuff? So tithing's not the goal. Generosity is the goal. A lifestyle of generosity. God gave lavishly to us in creation and in the cross, and He calls us to do the same. Be doers of the Word, not just hearers. And listen, there, of course, is grace in the midst of this. There is absolutely grace in the midst of this. If all you can do is drop a five spot in the box on the way out, and that's all you can do, then thank the Lord for that, and do not walk out of here feeling guilty for what you weren't able to do, all right? But that said, I will say that it's been my experience that people that use, that that say something like, well, I can't give right now. It's just a difficult season. And again, the Lord gets that. But it's been my experience that people who use that kind of as a, that that becomes an in-perpetuity excuse. It's never the right time. It's never the right time. I can't start now. If that were the case, like if I applied that concept to having children, Sarah and I would be childless. It's never the right time to have a baby, right? It's never convenient. But at some point, you just jump in and do it. And it's the same here. If you, if, when it's the right time, then I'll begin doing that. It'll never be the right time. And so at some point, you jump in, you start somewhere, you do what you can, and the Lord will provide. I mean, I've seen in my life that God plus 90% always equals more than 100% minus God. He will provide. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He will provide. Be doers of the word, not just hearers.
And that includes being a generous giver. But the other application we see specifically in the life of the Israelites, like we're looking at them, we're pulling the application from what we see in their lives here, and this is number three in your notes, is to be a willing servant. To be a willing servant. I mean, when you read through this section, you just see over and over and over the willingness of the people, not only to give to the point that Moses says, whoa, stop, but to employ their, the skills that they've been given. Like you see the women spinning, and, and you also see this very specifically with Bezalel and Aholiab. And so we'll look back at verse 30 again with me real quick. And then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he, being God, has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for the work in every skilled craft. Look, I mean, you see the word skill through here so many times, not just in these verses, but all around it. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And he has filled him with the skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Like one of the things we see here is that God loves art. Loves art. Loves beauty. He wants his dwelling place here at the tabernacle to be beautiful. And that's why, like, tabernacle is different than a church, but that's why, while we won't build a cathedral, though if you want to give that much and build a cathedral, I'm for it. But we also won't put up a metal building. We want something that looks nice, that has some thoughts of transcendence. That's what cathedrals do. You walk into an old cathedral and you just feel. Like, you just, there, there's, a, there's a thought process that just invokes when you walk into a beautiful space like that. But the bigger point here is that God calls people to serve using the skills that He has given them. Right? Like God, God sometimes does call the equipped. You see that. But He always equips the called. Always. And that's what He does here with Bezalel and, 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 and Ahulia. You look at Bezalel, and I mean, this guy's like the man. It says, you know, he has skill, he has intelligence, he has knowledge, he has craftsmanship in all these different, different things, and he, and he teaches Aholiab like he's a master of, of everything, not, not a jack of all trades, master of none. He's a master of all trades. He does all this beautiful work, like very much, you know, leading the artistic design of the tabernacle. That is our Dan Newsom. He leads the artistic design of everything in this church. Your bulletins, anything of art, anything that's website, like Dan does that. Can we thank Dan? And he's done it for 13 years for zero. We've never paid him a dime. This is how you use your talents, your skills that God's given you, your particular thing. Like he's made, 
1 Corinthians talks so much about how we are members of a body. Some are arms, some are legs, some are feet, some are even rear ends. But the body functions best when every part's doing its part. Everybody's got a different skill. Everybody's got a different talent. Everybody's got a different ability that God has given to. And the call here is use your skills. Do you, you spin goat skins? I don't think any of you do that. But hey, use it for the glory of God. But the big thing that we have to see here is you have to be willing. You've got to be willing to do it. Like we see the Israelites, they're so willing to use their talents, to use their abilities, to use their gifts for the glory of God. They're willing to be servants. And when you think about the call of service across the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, serve, 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 all throughout, there's a gazillion ways you serve, but the most prominent one that you see in Scripture is serve one another. Serve one another. All over the Scripture, we're called to serve God, we're called to serve each other. It's a command. And so, the question is, are you obedient to the command? Are you willing to serve? Like, are you, are you doing it? Or are you just hearing it? Oh, service, that's a good idea. Somebody else do that. That's not the call. We're called to serve willingly. Like sometimes we think things in the church are, are optional. I have an option of whether I gather for worship on Sunday mornings or not. I have an option of whether I grow in groups or not. I have an option of whether I serve the church and the community. I have an option of whether I go to our neighbors and the nations with the gospel. Yes, I know you do have an option in the one sense, but if you are a follower of Christ, actually you don't. You have a Lord. And the Lord says, gather, grow, serve, go. That's why we have those things, is that kind of like our markers. These are specifics from God. We're to be doers, not just hearers. Donald Whitney, a guy who, uh, he's a professor at Southern Seminary, writes a lot about spiritual disciplines. He's got a great book on spiritual disciplines. You, I didn't put in your resources, but you can Google it. Donald Whitney's Spiritual Disciplines, he writes this. God's Word has no place for spiritual unemployment or spiritual retirement or any other description of a professing Christian not serving God. Christ has served us. We're called to serve others and we're called to do it willingly. And so are you willing? Not just theoretically willing, but, but like actually willing, like signing up for needs that are in the church. We have needs. We're called to serve. That should meet. And somebody's like, but I've done my time. I put my time in a long time ago. I, I don't want to do that. Again, that's not the question. I read a book a couple of years ago where they were interviewing a missionary uh, in Africa, and they asked him if he really liked what he was doing. And when I read the guy's response, at first I was like, ooh. Because here's what he said. And then I was like, ooh. Because <laughs> here's what he said. Do I like this work? No. My wife and I do not like dirt. 
we have reasonably refined sensibilities. We do not like crawling into vile huts through goat refuse. But if a man, but is a man to do nothing for Christ, he does not like. God pity him if not. Liking or disliking has nothing to do with it. We have orders to go, and so we go. Love constrains us. Love constrains us. Friends, we're to be doers, not just hearers. And that means then by necessity, we must willingly walk into areas of service that may not be the most exciting in the world. I mean, imagine what it would have been like to have served Jesus during the three years of his earthly ministry. Traveling around, watching him. If you've watched Chosen and you've kind of seen some of these things, like traveling around, watching him do what, you know, his healing and teaching and ministry. Just, it would have been amazing to serve him during that time. It would have been appealing also. We would have liked that. But to have served him three years earlier, sweeping up and sharpening his saw in his carpentry shop would have been less appealing, but no less of any service. No less of any God-glorifying work. And so quoting Whitney some more, the ministry of serving may be as public as preaching or teaching, but more often it will be as sequestered as nursery duty. It may be as visible as singing and playing music, but usually it will go as unnoticed as operating the sound equipment. Serving may be as appreciated as a powerful testimony in a worship service, but typically it's as thankless as washing dishes after a church social. Most service, even that which seems the most appealing, we perceive as we would the tip of an iceberg. Only the eyes of God sees the larger hidden part of it. And that's ultimately who we're serving. When we serve one another, we're serving Christ. Because think about when Paul, when, when, when Saul was persecuting the church, Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? Is that what Jesus said? No, he said, why do you persecute me? So when we serve the church, we are serving Christ. And we're to do so willingly, employing the skills God has given us. Because each one of us has a gift. Don't waste the gift God has given you. He's given it to you, not somebody else, on purpose. Use it. Use it. Now, it doesn't mean every single gift can specifically be used in the church, but it can be used to the glory of God. Like I was given a gift to run. I don't know how that's going to work in the church and just run back and forth up here. I, 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 I don't know how that's going to work. But it can be used for the glory of God and has in time. And so let's do our jobs. Arms, legs, feet. Let's do our jobs. Let's be willing servants. And so for some of us, that perhaps might mean a mental shift. And here's the mental shift. It goes from, do I have to serve 
Do I have to give? Do I have to be hospitable and invite people into my home and put myself out and inconvenience myself for other people to... I've been served. I want to serve. I've been loved. I want to love. I've been forgiven. I want to forgive. I've been given grace. I'm going to give grace. I've been shown so much mercy. I'm going to show mercy. I've been... God has loved me with such kindness. I'm going to be kind to others. God made peace with me. I'm going to seek to make peace with others. Jesus died in my place for my sins. I'm going to die to myself that I might live for others. We're to be doers. Not just hearers. And so let's run the playbook. Father, we thank you that Jesus, that Jesus, you not only heard your Father's call to take our place on the cross, you actually went and did it. And taking upon yourself all of my sin, suffering and dying in my place, as a substitute payment for what I owe, my sin debt. And you did this willingly. No one takes, took your life from you. You laid it down, John 10 tells us. You have authority to do this. You have authority to take it back up again. And you did take it back up again in victory over sin and death. And so we worship and praise you that we, in Christ, have forgiveness. We have salvation. We have eternal life. We are no longer in our sins. And Father, because of that, it, it, it always, where that is true, it always shows itself in how we live, not perfectly at all. but pursuing. As Pastor Chad tells his students so, much, so, so often, pursuit, not perfection. And so help us to pursue. And when we fall, to look to Christ again. That He, and agree with Him about our sin, and repent, and get up and walk again. And so, Father, you, in, by the power of your Holy Spirit, have spoken to each one of us in specific ways this morning. And whatever it is you've called us to in accordance with your Scripture... If it's not in accordance with your scriptures, not you who's calling. But whatever it is, let us not just be hearers, but doers. In Jesus' name.